This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good evening. Am I audible? Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Sean and Paula, for those wonderful introductions. When I received the invitation to deliver the camp's lectures, I was delighted when I saw the list of my predecessors. I realized it was a bad idea and I should have said no. And now that I see there are so many of you, so few of me, uh, I'm sure that that first conviction was right. But I will persevere. It's a real pleasure to talk about history anywhere and a special pleasure to do it at Stanford, which is an extraordinary center of historical research and teaching, um, one where many of my closest friends in the profession um, have found their permanent nests, and uh, one where, with, with which my own program has a very pleasant and quite unusual relationship. These days, we don't just offer graduate students admission. We fight for them tooth and nail. We sink our fangs into their calves and try to make them come to us rather than nasty institutions in Cambridge and New Haven and Berkeley. But whenever anyone comes to me and says, well, yes, I've been admitted to Princeton and Stanford to study the history of early modern Europe, I find myself saying, well, you know, Stanford's really great. <laughs> and if the student has already visited here, he or she already says, yes, that's just what they said about Princeton at Stanford. Let me assure you, this is an unusual and very happy situation, and I hope it goes on for a very long time. There is a handout, and I hope as many of you as possible have it, um, on which I have put the, some of the texts that I'll be quoting in, in the original and in translation, but I'll be more or less reciting everything that's on them in any case. I, but for those who can have them, they should clarify matters. The English mathematician, necromancer, magus, and astrologer John Dee did most things in a way quite his own. The most distinctive thing, of course, was to talk to angels which he did over a period of some 30 years, using a showstone, a magnificent stone, which he set on a wax seal, wearing the Urim and Tumim of the Old Testament priests, and using the services of professional scryers, um, something like modern mediums, since Dee himself couldn't see or hear the angels as they actually appeared. The scryers, fortunately, were very talented and were able to reveal to Dee all sorts of things from the secrets of the angelic alphabet to many forms of magical power, as Deborah Harkness, a wonderful former student of Paula's, has shown us in a great book. Um, Dee's reputation for intellectual sharpness was not improved, however, when the records of these conversations were published and the greater public could read one of the scryers asking one of the angels for a loan of a hundred pounds. <laughs> the news widely spread that this same scryer was a professional thief and had the cut ears of a convict did nothing more to enhance Dee's prowess. Well, 
as I say, most of the things Dee did, he did in his own way and with an air. But when he read history, he worked strictly by rule. His classics were not our classics. That's true for most Renaissance people, but they included histories. For example, the Latin prose accounts of Troy's fall by Dictes the Cretan and Darius the Phrygian. These are actually late rewritings of the war in Troy, supposedly from the Trojan side, um, and at least one originally written in Greek. They survive for us in Latin. Dee took these as sober histories of the Trojan War, the factual substrate on which Homer had elaborated in his fanciful poems. And he set out to read them strictly and critically. Dictes, for example, says, and this is the very first text on your song sheets, as I think of these after the old, ten, the old uh, custom of the music hall. Dictes writes that he could describe everything that Ulysses did at Troy very precisely because he himself had been present. And D immediately makes a note. The truth of this account is perfect because it, it's an eyewitness account. A Spartan king later on worries that it'll be dangerous, according to Derry's account, if the Greeks become too accustomed to sailing to Troy. Note, says Dee, one of whose capacities was Sir William Cecil's advisor on naval affairs, it's not prudent to allow foreigners to know our coastline too well. I think my favorite note, which I didn't include, is when Helen is explaining the uh, ancestry of all the heroes that she sees and denotes, yes, English women do have good memories since he believed, as all good Britons did in the 16th century, that the Britons were descended from Brutus, the Trojan refugee. Now, as he read, he followed rules, implicit rules, every one of which was stated in the formal treatises on the art of reading history, which are my subject tonight and next time, treatises written in the late 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. And just to exemplify this from the one of them that I'll be talking about mostly tonight, Francois Baudouin's prolegomena on law and history, Baudouin says very early on, I wish that writers narrated only those things that they saw and in which they themselves took part. Polybius, the great Greek historian of Rome, professes that he would like to have this above all in history, and the ancients clearly demanded it. Baudouin also made clear that he had learned from the best ancient and modern sources alike the rule that one should study ancient texts in order to compare them and their lessons with modern times and draw practical inferences. What a certain Florentine did in the last century, that's as close as you could come to mentioning Machiavelli by name in polite company, for his own utility and that of his fellow Italians, we should do all the more intensively, especially where the matter deserves it, and a reasonable analogy comes to mind. Of course, that's always the problem in using the past for present assumption. In the end, he says, the historical hypothesis should yield, so to speak, a political thesis. So, as Dee set out to read Dictes and Darius, he did so not as we might set out to read, say, James Fry's memoir of his addiction, um, as something one might skim through for amusement or read in order now to swell with moral indignation. He did so with strict intentions of using what he read and following strict protocols of intensive scholarly reading. 
Dee was by no means alone in this. Just to stick with England, Gabriel Harvey, Edmund Spencer's closest friend and a prominent British intellectual, read the same way over and over again, as he tells us in the magnificent marginal notes with which he decorated some hun a hundred of the books that belonged to him, notes that are so beautifully written that they're easy to, uh, to uh, transcribe and thus confirm my teacher Arnaldo Momidiano's principle that a great man with good handwriting is twice a great man. <laughs> now, Harvey has not always been taken seriously in modern times, possibly because the only picture we have of him is a woodcut of him letting down his codpiece to piss. Um, the caption is to let fly upon a jakes in terror at the news that a pamphlet against him has been published. The picture, of course, appears in the pamphlet. But in his time, he was a professional reader and much frequented by young men who needed to prepare themselves for important tasks. And in the passages that I've given you, you'll see him recalling that the courtier Philip Sidney and I systematically read these three books of Livy, the first three, a little before he went in his embassy to the Holy Roman Emperor. You'll see him saying that he went through 10 books on Hannibal in one week, rapidly, eagerly, and sharply, with young Thomas Smith, shortly afterwards viceroy in the Irish Ards, a young man as prudent as he was energetic and strong. We were somewhat more free and biting in our judgment, he says, than was quite proper for men of our fortunes, virtues, or even knowledge. He was a critical reader. And in one unusually English note, he makes clear the source of his rules for critical reading of all other Sir Philip Sidney, Colonel Smith, and Monsieur Baudin won my heart to Livy. Sidney and Smith were friends and patrons for whom Harvey read. Baudin was the author of one of the great mistitled books in the history of historical thought, The Method for the Easy Comprehension of History. It's a title like Greenland. Uh, but it was Baudin's book that showed Harvey how to be a professional reader. And when Baudin arrived in France to try to arrange Queen Elizabeth's marriage with the Duke of Alençon, Harvey hurled himself upon him with a question about the bibliography of ancient chronology. So, in the 1550s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, professional readers, professional scholars who read with young aristocrats or tutored them at schools and universities, learned their principles of reading from a body of texts, which we now call artes historicae, arts of history. It's a genre that grew from roots in ancient thought. Lucian and Dionysius of Halicarnassus wrote formal works on the criticisms of history, but that really began to bloom in the Renaissance. The earliest of these texts, like the Actius of the Neapolitan humanist Giovanni Giuliano Pontano, treated history as a matter of production. They told you not how to read, but how to write. Renaissance humanists needed this kind of instruction. They worked professionally as chancellors and secretaries for princes and city governments. It was their job to weave histories out of diplomatic dispatches, treaties, and sometimes sheer effrontery in order to make clear the views of the patrons for whom they worked and to provide convincing narratives of their achievements. 
So the first artes historicae tended to content themselves with practical instructions, how to write a good battle scene, even if the battle was between two pathetic troops of professional mercenaries who saw each other, went on strike, and never exchanged a blow, or how to tell about simultaneous events in different parts of a campaign without confusing the reader. In the 16th century, and the 16th century, even more than the late 20th, was the great age of capital T theory, when commentaries on Aristotle's poetics sprouted up like triffids across the European landscape, hundreds of them, five and 600 pages long. Commentaries on history followed, going into more detail on such serious questions as whether a historian should write speeches, particularly if his protagonists hadn't, in fact, given speeches. And of course, all ancient historians had done this. But in the middle of the 16th century, the arts of history begin to take on a new key. Machiavelli, as Victoria Kahn and others have taught us, had made history, even ancient history, dangerous, had showed that reading Livy, you could find out that the ancient Roman king Numa had actually invented the Roman religion in order to make good citizens and soldiers of his fellow countrymen, and that Machiavelli thought this was a good thing. The Reformation and Counter-Reformation called the history of Christianity itself into question. The discoveries to the South in Africa, to the West in the New World, and to the East unleashed a flood of new information. Everyone knew that history was somehow vitally important. Tommaso Campanella, the South Italian philosopher, as usual found a more striking way than others to express this when he said, to be ignorant of history is to be like a worm inside a great cheese, <laughs> knowing nothing of what goes on outside. But the view he expressed was largely a, was a consensus one. And treatises began to be written, which offered rules, not for the writing, but for the reading and judgment of histories. Now, some of the authors who created these books nourished intellectual aims that can astonish a historian who usually works with humanists. Most humanists were modest, sheep-like creatures. They placidly grazed on classical texts, finding the, model, mor the morals you were supposed to find. For example, they found that historia magistra vitae, history is the mistress of life. And their readers found this. And after you've read a few artes historicae and seen them writing in the margin, Historia Magistra Vitae, where the author has solemnly written Historia Magistra Vitae, you begin to wonder what this strange repetition compulsion was from which they suffered. But sheep, as Monty Python taught us long ago, can be ambitious. And ambitious sheep can be dangerous. The most intellectually ambitious of the artists of history, men like Jean Baudin, used the term history in its full ancient sense, which they knew very well, the ancient Ionic sense, not simply an account of human deeds, but any systematic inquiry that moved from particulars, whether natural or human or other, rather than from first principles. Their ambitions for the study of history could expand to embrace the world itself. Baudin, for example, envisioned critical histories of nothing less than nature, man, and God in three parallel books. Christophe Milieu called for a critical history of literature and the arts, a cultural history of the West, you might call it. And Bartholomeus Keckermann sketched a history of logic as well as a logic of history in parallel books. Campanella showed his 
her usual flair for the unexpected instance, when he described Galileo's pamphlet, The Starry Messenger, as historical, since it doesn't say why four planets move around Jupiter or two around Saturn, but just says that that's the case. Rather like Philip Sparrow in David Lodge's novel Small World, the most aggressive of the artists of history decided that the genre gave them possibilities to talk about life, death, sex, the universe, everything you can possibly imagine in a single work. The two books that have always been seen as central to the genre were both written in the 1560s, Francois Baudouin's Prolegomena to the Study of Law and History, which began in a course he gave in Heidelberg in 1560, and Jean Baudouin's Method of 1566. And I'll be concentrating on Baudouin tonight, um, really because I'm hooked by the challenge of the men, but also because two artes historici might be too much, even for a Stanford public. Baudouin was a Remarkable man, an intellectual exile with some of the brilliance and desperation of the intellectual exiles of the 19th and 20th century. He began at Arras, moved to Louvain, to Geneva, where he served as Calvin's secretary until he developed theological disagreements with Calvin, then to Heidelberg, and finally tried to help resolve the French wars of religion at the Colloquy of Poissy. His efforts, like Baudin's, to understand the meaning of history were aimed in the end to put a stop to the religious and civil wars that were tearing at the fabric of the Low Countries in France, and of course they sadly failed to do so. <coughs> Baudin and Baudin made many parallel arguments. They called for a history that would be cosmopolitan, embracing the New World in Asia as well as the ancient world in Europe. They called for a history that would be hermeneutical, a history that would rest on critical reading of early sources rather than simply on compilation. Both were willing to assess even the most prominent of earlier historians, Polybius in antiquity, Guicciardini in their own day, as critically as they might assess a Livy who was full of superstitious incidents of statues moving and cows being born miraculously. And both of them defined history in a new way, not as a narrative that you could find complete and satisfactory in a single author, so that Livy, for example, was in effect the history of Rome, but as a narrative that had to be crafted out of all of the available sources. This was an extraordinarily powerful and innovative intellectual program. How do we explain its origins? Well, both Baudouin and Baudin were jurists by profession, and that's the fact that has usually been used to explain this sudden, um, the, the sudden appearance of works which really did an intellectual job that hadn't been done before. Both of them came from the French, the Gallic school of law, which insisted that you had to treat the Roman law not as a code of absolutely valid principles that had been laid down in antiquity once for all and could simply be applied to modern instances, but itself as a product of history. And Baudouin says, as you can see in your song sheets, the so-called corpus juris, corpus of Roman law, that Justinian left to us was actually assembled from the whole vast range of Roman laws that had been thrown around in the 1300 years that separated Romulus from Justinian, 
Not only do we have to say that old, new, and middle jurisprudence differed from one another, but it, jurisprudence changed almost every year. And after all, the condition of the laws is such that by law, a later law invalidates an earlier one. What will happen if we don't use history to observe the order of times, to establish something like a chronology of the laws? So given that Baudouin entitled his work Prolegomena to the Study of Law and Universal History and gave the lectures that became the book as the introduction to a course on the law, given the legal inspiration, given the connection with the school of legal history, it has seemed only natural to make this uh, make this causal argument. And there's a good deal to it. It was a natural move for historians wishing to raise the status of their pursuit in the 16th century to connect it with the law. For after all, in the 16th century as now, humanists occupied the bottom tier in the great wedding cake of university faculties, <laughs> receiving the lowest salaries and enjoying the least prestige, while the jurists in their stately robes occupied the top no wonder that might, one might want to show not only that history had, that law had to be understood through history, but that history was itself, in a way, a form of law. And this connection was very successful. It really did something to create the possibility of a vocation or profession of historian in the 16th century. It's no accident that the greatest historians of the time, Francesco Guicciardini, Jacques Auguste Tutu, were jurists, uh, Geronimo Zurita in Spain, were jurists by profession. What I want to argue, though, is that this connection, though necessary, is insufficient. That, in fact, the Artes Historicae dealt with a wider range of issues, grew from a wider range of intellectual roots, had a far more widely ranging and cosmopolitan context than this traditional count can help us to understand. So the law was vital to them, there is no doubt, and Baudouin was a brilliant historical lawyer who devoted most of his life to historicizing the Roman law, setting out in brilliant books the legislation of Constantine, the legislation of Justinian, explaining points historically that had never been explained before. Why, for example, did Constantine, the first Christian emperor, who heard Lactantius preach every day that Satan had created the brothels of Rome and Constantinople, why did Constantine not close them down? Well, Baudouin explained, it was the society in which an emperor had to live. The times were so given over to every sort of shamelessness that even an emperor could not order his subjects to observe chastity, one and all. There's a sense of history here which had been absent from previous treatments of the Roman law and which really made it a central enterprise to set law into the context of the circumstances that gave birth to it. As a later theorist would put it with a wonderful analogy, circumstances are to history what modes are to chant in music. Modes are like rules that give order and direction to harmony, and circumstances, as reconstructed by Baudouin and his like, did the same. Legal historians, in other words, really did devise what we would now think of as the discipline of explication by historical context. But there's much more to Baudouin than this. In the first place, there was Baudouin's commitment to teaching from the ancient historians. From the start, Baudouin makes a wonderfully powerful analogy in his book between history and a kind of world theater in which events unroll. 
In doing so, he drew, as he said, on Polybius and Diodorus Siculus, the great Greek historians who had really taken the entire Mediterranean basin as the scene of their histories and had tried to set great events like the wars between Rome and Carthage into that vast context. So history for Baudouin was not simply legal. It meant studying and mastering the, law, the historians of ancient Greece. But in doing this, Baudouin was merely one of a generation of classicists. And I'll just give you, um, and it's the next example on your sheets, the, the case of David Catraeus, a man even less well-known than Baudouin. I mean, I know none of these people are household names, even in learned houses, um, though I will try to argue that they are significant figures. Catraeus um, taught history at the University of Rostock and also wrote a lot of history. And he taught, as Baudouin said you should, right from the sources, Herodotus and Thucydides. We have his lecture courses on them. They're a little different from what one might expect now. I love his description of the colloquy of the Melians and the Athenians in Book 5 of Thucydides. This, for those of you who don't know it, is one of the most agonizing texts in the entirety of the Western canon in which the Athenians explain to the Melians that they are bigger and more powerful and the Melians must either surrender or be destroyed. The Melians call upon honor in the gods and the Athenians tell them only the weak make such appeals and then proceed to terminate them with extreme prejudice. And, uh, and, and uh, Catraeus says, well, there's the dialogue of the Melians and Athenians in which there are many very pleasant principles stated that you deserve to memorize. <laughs> Nonetheless, the teaching from the ancients is a common element. So is a deeper common element. As Baudouin studied ancient history, he began not only to analyze the texts that had been preserved and that one could read as wholes, but to reconstruct the texts and scholarship of writers whose historical work had actually not been preserved in the Middle Ages. And if you look at the next passage, he is talking here about Cicero as a historian. In his letter to, letters to Atticus, book 16, he writes, I'm burning with the desire to, for history. Your exhortation moves me deeply. And he didn't only recognize Atticus as his master in history, he also consulted him regularly about Roman chronology and magistrates. He not only allowed Atticus to correct his books, but begged him to do so, and gladly entered into precise discussion of many details. Now, what Baudouin was reconstructing here was the career of Cicero the historian and antiquarian, a version of Cicero who was only reconstructed again in the 20th century by that great historian Elizabeth Rawson. And what he does here is to piece together a mosaic of quotations in order to give a sense of the study of history in Cicero's circle. The result of his studies is quite remarkable. What he decided was that Cicero and his friend Atticus had already been historians of the law, that it was they who had traced the history of Roman jurisprudence and made it the baseline of Roman history. So Baudouin, in arguing for a historical approach to law, was not only speaking from the jurisprudence of his own time, he saw himself as reconstructing a forgotten ancient enterprise. And in doing this, he was right at the cutting edge of the classical scholarship of his time. It was only really in the 1550s and 60s that classical scholars began systematically to collect the fragments of authors whose works didn't survive as wholes. And I've given you just a, a short excerpt 
from Henri Etienne's preface to Ctesias, who wrote a history of Persia, which is not preserved except in fragments and one long, and, and one long section, where you see Etienne saying, since I always somehow took more delight in Persian history than any other, I've always searched with the greatest care for everything relevant to it and have assembled everything the Greek and Roman writers say about it under a single notebook heading as an aid to memory. So this is an enterprise really at the most sophisticated level of 16th century classical scholarship. And that too has to be seen as part of the basis for these artes historicae. Their authors were drawing on a number of intellectual enterprises. One of the most striking of these didn't lie in the realm of the book at all. From the early 14th century onwards, a second kind of classical scholarship had grown up alongside the kind that was based on books, a scholarship concerned less with texts than with objects. Antiquaries from Petrarch to Poggio Bracciolini and beyond paced the streets of Rome, trying to establish what each of the ruinous buildings had done and had been in antiquity, uh, a problem difficult to solve since the Romans, as one German antiquary complained, would tell you that every building was a bath. Oh yes, the Colosseum, that's a bath. <laughs> the Forum of Trajan, that's a bath too, sir. The antiquaries collected information about statues, vessels, inscriptions. They created by doing so a version of Rome and eventually of Greece that was material rather than textual in its basis, that was synchronic necessarily rather than diachronic in its form, that illuminated beliefs and customs. Being an antiquary meant doing history in a new key. And we can see this in the work of one 15th century writer, Poggio Bracciolini. Poggio, as a historian, and as a historian, he sometimes wrote and sometimes translated and made no distinction between the two, um, uh, which already tells you something about his attitude. Um, my first text is from his introduction to Xenophon's little treatise on the education of Cyrus, um, which is a nauseatingly um, saccharine piece of hype. I didn't, says Poggio, bother translating the individual words, the little aphorisms, the expressions that appear throughout, since I know that there are many things that can be eloquently said in Greek and that Latin scholars couldn't read without distaste. So I followed the history, omitting the things which didn't detract from the truth and seemed hard to say in good Latin. Now, Baudouin, whose works were based on meticulous scrutiny of every piece of evidence, whose margins bore hedges of ref specific references to the sources from which he had drawn every fact and every citation would have been horrified by this. But he'd have been delighted to read what Poggio said about the Pyramidae of Hestius, that great Roman artifact by the Protestant cemetery. And Petrarch had thought that this was the tomb of Remus, Romulus's brother, whom Romulus kills in the legendary early history of Rome. And here Poggio, who in introducing Xenophon had been cavalier about any sort of fact, appears as Mr. Kasaubin himself. I am surprised that the learned Petrarch wrote in one of his letters that this is the tomb of Remus. I think he followed popular opinion and didn't consider it worthwhile to examine the inscription, which was, after all, covered with brambles. You can feel the poor man picking them out of his skin as he writes this. In reading the inscription as it is, his successors have shown greater diligence, if less learning. 
The antiquary, as my teacher Arnaldo Momigliano said, um, did not need intelligence. He needed memory and precision. And that those are the virtues that Poggio is prizing here. It was a particular kind of scholarship, a scholarship that addressed itself to things and made those things talk. Baudouin was a powerful enthusiast for exactly this sort of reading, this sort of history. And he says in one, in one part of his prolegomena that Cornelius Nepos, Roman historian, had said, if you had Cicero's letters to Atticus, you wouldn't really need a history of Cicero's times, suggesting that a history didn't have to be a sequential narrative. Baudouin takes off from this. As Cicero's books could provide rich and ample matter for Roman history, testimonies on many points that now escape us could be derived from other writers, even if they're not historians. And why confine myself to books? Everywhere, ancient statues and paintings and inscriptions carved on stone slabs and coins and woven into tapestries and wall coverings provide us with historical materials of every kind. The modern scholar could not hope to find ancient history, according to Baudouin, in the text of any writer, but must reconstruct it using all the evidence, material as well as textual. Here, Baudouin fuses an antiquarian tradition, much of which had been created less by scholars like himself than by artists and architects, with the textual traditions of the jurists and the philologists, and in doing so, he was again in dialogue with the most advanced historical practice of his time. In the 1540s, Piero Ligorio had discovered in the Roman Forum the ruins of the Fasti and Triumphi, lists of the consuls and the great events of Roman Republican history. And by the late 1550s, scholars like Carlo Sigonio and Onofrio Panvinio were rewriting Roman history by trying to match those material texts to the accounts of Livy and Polybius. So once again, Baudouin was not simply calling for something that didn't exist. He was in dialogue with the most up-to-date form of historical scholarship in his time. Well, of course, it's one thing, and we'll see Baudouin himself say this in a few minutes, to tell people how to write history, tell people how to find sources. It's another to tell them how to use them. How do you know as the sources pile up like Asa on Pelion, as the material objects begin to speak to you over the cacophony of the historians, whom you should actually trust? Baudouin was acutely conscious of this problem. As he says, in the next passage on my song sheet, when Flavius Vopiscus set out to write a history, he was not ashamed to confess that there is no writer of history who hasn't told a lie, but he absolutely didn't conclude that we should therefore reject all histories, and he didn't pronounce all histories to be, as Julius Capitolinus puts it, myth histories. Now, there's a certain amount of uh, wonderful paradox here. Um, Flavius Vopiscus and Julius Capitolinus are, in fact, imaginary authors, um, part of the so-called writers of the Augustan history, whom some mad genius dreamed up in the fourth century. And all of their discussions of the credibility of sources were put in by the forger in order to lend credibility to what would otherwise have been a bare and unconvincing narrative. Nonetheless, here and elsewhere, Baudouin makes clear that a primary problem for his new historian, his perfect historian, is actually arriving at practical and valid judgments of all the sources that now lie before him. 
And Baudouin addresses this problem in a number of ways. The first was to take aim at, the, at what was a tempting and unavoidable target. In 1498, that brilliant Dominican theologian, Giovanni Nanni of Viterbo, papal theologian, had published 24 texts that told the entire history of the ancient world in interlocking accounts. They had alluring names, not Herodotus and Thucydides, those deceitful Greeks, but Manetho, the Egyptian priest, Barossus, the Chaldean priest, Metasthenes, the Persian priest, and others. Uh, Annius's set of texts was really much better than the Greek historians. It told much more interesting stories. It told how the center of culture in the ancient world was, of course, Viterbo, where Annius came from. It connected his patron, the Borgia Pope Alexander VI, to Isis and Osiris. And it drew from medieval legend the origin of the Janicolo, the great hill in Rome, where Paula and I have spent very happy times. This was, of course, the hill where Noah's Ark had come to rest. The name for Noah in the old Italic language was, of course, Janus, because the Noah invented wine, and the Hebrew word for wine is yayin, and Bob is your uncle. <laughs> uh, Annius you know, built on these um, un ungainly presuppositions a wonderfully rich history which traced the origins of every medieval and modern European nation to prominent predecessors. The Druids came from Dryas. The Lombards came from Longo and Bardas. Um, the British, of course, came from Brutus. You can see why these texts outsold Herodotus and Thucydides through the 16th century. The most important thing that Annius did, though, was to write a commentary on his texts in which he showed why you should believe them by giving formal rules to show you which historians to believe and which not. So Metasthenes, he says, and this is Annius commenting on Metasthenes, uh, Erasmus's friend Beatus Renanus says of, these, of, of this enterprise, it's wonderful. One of these guys is milking the he-goat, and the other is holding out a sieve to catch the milk. Um, Metasthenes gives rules to enable us to know which authors we should accept and which we should reject in chronology. The first rule is this. We should accept without reservation all those whose credibility was publicly assured. And he says, in those days, those writers were the public notaries of events or, of, of dates or events, like Metasthenes or Barossus or Manetho. It was a brilliant interlocking system. It was, of course, also fairly easy to demolish by the middle of the 16th century, and Baudouin joined a number of others in taking, this, uh, taking the structure apart um, element by element. But when Baudouin addresses this, he gives us a clue to something that hasn't really been suspected. Baudouin knew Annius's book because it was printed in 1498 with great splendor in a kind of Gothic pseudo-biblical type and had been often reprinted and reached a large public. But Annius was not the only one who was beginning to address issues like this. Giulio Pomponio Leto, for example, friend of Annius, beneficiary of the same patron, Cardinal Carvajal, 
also discussed these issues in lectures on the art of history itself, in which, um, and I haven't translated, but this is, he gives you, um, well, he gives you a, a, a long set of quotations from those same forged scriptores historiae Augusti about the fact that you really need truth above all in history. And he draws from Dionysius of Halicarnassus, who wrote a very detailed account of early Roman history, lots of divergent opinions about the foundation of Rome, and then says, who can make a positive assertion about so ancient an event? Well, Leto's remarks come not from a publication, but from student notes in the Vatican Library on his lectures. And what that tells us, I think, is something critical. The Ars Historica was already being taught at the end of the 15th century, thanks to the discovery of Greek texts like Dionysius of Halicarnassus, which showed how wide a range of conflicting opinions there had been in the ancient world about basic elements of Greek and Roman history. It was taught because if you could prove that your texts and your ideas were the ones that should have faith reposed in them, you could win exclusive access to the ear trumpet of a patron like the Borgia Pope Alexander V or Cardinal Carvajal. Leto was almost as ingenious as Annius. Both of them believed that pretty much everyone before the flood and a certain number of people after had been giants. And Pomponio actually found the bones of a giant in Pozzuoli, where else, and convinced himself and then convinced a large audience that these were the bones of one of the giants who had attacked Mount Olympus, which he was thus able to locate, and that Pozzuoli was the remains of Ossa, which had been piled on Pelion. The Ars Historica, in other words, began not in the sober world of mid-16th century jurists, but in the much more florid, courtly world of the high Renaissance, where men like Pomponio Leto and Anio da Viterbo, who were tourist guides, among other things, and would give you a wonderful walk around the city of Rome, showing you every Etruscan monument that was preserved. Of course, there aren't any, but that's all right. These were the men who first began to think about the Ars Historica. When Baudouin refutes Annius, he shows that there's a tap root going much farther back than anybody has really ever suspected. A second root of this search for credibility and the search for content is rather parallel than, goes rather parallel than backwards, yet it's probably more unlikely even than the first in this context. In his prolegomena, Baudouin says more than once that part of universal history has to be a history of the church, and it's a very special history of the church, one that includes ceremonies, discipline, order, and governance, not, in other words, a list of popes and other dignitaries, but a recreation of the actual doctrines and order of service in the church century by century. And in a reference, he makes clear exactly what he has in mind. Um, I remember, he says, that, uh, that uh, a group, when a group of five men at Magdeburg some years ago had undertaken to compose a history of the church, they asked my advice, and I explained my views on that matter in a long letter. Well, he says, it's always easier to say what needs to be done than to do it. That's probably his verdict on the final product. What he was referring to here was the first great Protestant church history, coordinated by the South Slav humanist Matthias Flatius Illyricus and carried out by a team. It's actually the first grant-supported, team-based research project in the history of historical scholarship. 
Flotsius found supporters all over Protestant Europe. He hired young BAs to take notes and more experienced MAs to work them up into a coherent text and curators to be sure the money was being spent properly. He collected documents all over Europe so assiduously that librarians from Poznan to Paris feared the Kulter Flakianus, the Flakian razor with which he supposedly whipped out any text from its binding that he didn't have time to copy. Um, this appears to be a canard. And like Baudouin, he emphasized, as you can see from a letter which I quote here, that when, when told that forms of ceremony and ecclesiastical hymns are irrelevant, that we, we historians of the church, want to show not only what the doctrines of the church were century by century, but also what sorts of ceremonies and hymns it used, for all these matters are connected. So once again, Baudouin was in dialogue with an actual historical enterprise. Indeed, he sent the five men who ran the enterprise in Magdeburg very precise rules for dealing with historical sources. And a student of mine, Greg Lyon, has followed in the manuscript. You can see them marking these up and then making a set of protocols and then failing to use them. And then Baudouin saying, well, I guess I could tell them what to do, but you can take the historian to water, but you can't actually make him drink. What is remarkable here is that this very advanced form of what's always been seen as secular historiography, the theory of how to read and compose critical history was tightly connected with the history of the church, with, the his, with very polemical, inevitably polemical works written by Protestants and eventually by Catholics. Church history was, in fact, in many ways, the most methodologically innovative form of history in the 16th and 17th centuries. Normal historians couldn't cite their sources because the canons of rhetoric forbade it. So poor Jacques-Auguste de Toux, who did his best to write an absolutely flawlessly impartial history of the wars of the 16th century, who took every passage he wrote and sent it to people on both sides for judgment. So he would take his account of the defeat of Charles V, and he sent it to German Protestants, and he sent it to French Catholics, and said, what do you all think? And then did his best to reconcile their judgments, had no way to record any of those processes in the final product. We can only recreate them from his files of notes and, and preparatory materials in the Bibliothèque Nationale. Church historians, by contrast, quoted documents whenever they wanted. Long documents, rich documents, fake documents. They had done this since antiquity when Eusebius created the genre. Historians normally offered narratives. They told you the story of, for example, the Italian wars or the, the triumphs and tragedies of the city of Florence. Church historians told you how it was, what it was like to be a Christian in the 4th century or the 10th century or the 15th century. And to that extent, it's no accident that Baudelaire's practice and professions were so tightly connected with a field of history that usually isn't even treated in discussions of historiography in early modern Europe. This is happily changing. There's even a wonderful book by Alison Fraser, Possible Lives, on Renaissance humanist hagiography. When I was young, we thought that no humanist ever read, much less wrote a life of a saint. It turns out they wrote hundreds of them, and they have many of these innovative qualities. So there, there's a real story here. Finally, there's a third form of critical inquiry in Baudouin, and this is in many ways the most far-reaching of all. 
Baudouin was fascinated by the question of how to write the history of peoples who hadn't kept written records of their past. And he was quite certain that this was possible. After all, many peoples, he argued, had preserved their pasts only orally. And I'm skipping a passage here to go down to page six. What happened to the Germans must have happened to many peoples. Tacitus says that the ancient Germans didn't know the secrets of letters, but used ancient songs, and this was their only form of public memory. Einhardt, a good witness for the point in question, remarks the same of Charlemagne. I'll give another example, and one no less noble. In the new, that is, newly discovered islands of the West Indies, there are said to be men who were illiterate and yet adore letters as if they were gods. When they heard that our fellow Christians there could converse with one another through letters at a distance and understand one another, they worshipped the sealed letters in which they said some sort of divine spirit must be enclosed. For all their illiteracy, these men have conserved in memory the history of their people for many centuries, partly with certain arbitrary symbols, as the Egyptians did with hieroglyphs, partly with their songs, which they teach one another and sing in their choruses, and they call these aretos. And I understand that those of us who have lived there have actually managed to record in writing histories derived from these songs. Now, Baudouin learned from the historian Gonzalez uh, Fernandez de Oviedo, which described the first decades of European settlement in the New World, about these songs and their role in the preservation of New World histories. And he obviously didn't accord them a very high cultural status. What's remarkable, though, is that where Gonzalez de, uh, de Herrera only, knows, only mentions that illiterate Europeans had also used songs, Baudouin goes much farther. He points out, in fact, that the Romans themselves had only preserved their early past in song. And in a later passage, he says, after all, many peoples didn't wish to leave written records of what they wanted everyone to commit to memory. Many things were spread abroad only in poems to be memorized and songs to be performed and were then later on recorded in writing. I admit that much has been lost. Cicero writes in his Brutus, I wish we had those songs of great men which were sung at banquets. And later still, he says, I wouldn't take the trouble to mention all this barbarism except that they could accuse us of still greater barbarity. If we refuse to study history, we could and should learn from them to show diligence in preserving the collective memory. Here, Baudouin levels Indians, ancient Romans, and Europeans, all of them possessors of traditions preserved only orally, not in writing, none of them superior to the rest. This is the beginning of an extraordinary process. Carlo Ginzburg refers to this in his wonderful book, No Island is an Island, by which scholars begin to wonder whether poetry might be an early form of history, a process that will lead to Vico and other great speculative historians a century later. It's also the beginning of a destructive process. For if you decided that Roman tradition was only preserved in song, the next step might be to decide that Roman tradition had no precise factual content at all. In fact, by the end of the 16th century, one of my favorite chronologers, his name is Ioannes Temporarius, he was doomed to be a chronologer, <laughs> had drawn from the idea that Roman tradition was preserved only in songs, and songs, after all, were only offered in praise of those that they referred to, that there had never been a Romulus, there had never been a Remus, there had never been a Numa, that they had never existed, and that Roman history had to be reconstructed on a completely different basis. 
So here above all, you see Baudouin working with information from the newest sources and integrating it into styles of history which otherwise reached back into Renaissance court practice, into high Renaissance juridical practice, into philology and other very, very different realms. In the end, Baudouin's vision of history was extraordinarily comprehensive. He actually insists at the very end, and this is my last quotation, that history must not only represent a critical reworking of our own early past, it has to take in the entire history of the world around us. We can't understand our own history unless we recall that of the barbarians. If we're French or British or German or Spanish or Italian, we can't speak of our countrymen if we don't know the history of the Franks, Angles, Saxons, Goths, Lombards. Since our countrymen have often encountered Saracens and Turks, we dare not be ignorant of Saracen and Turkish history. We must not immediately classify as barbarous or condemn as unknown everything that is alien from our customs or from the eloquence of the Romans and Greeks. Here, in other words, Baudouin not only insists on the critical sifting of all traditions, he insists in the end on the equal importance of all historical traditions. And as he does that, powerfully historicizes, powerfully normalizes Europe as merely one actor and by no means necessarily the most important one in the history of the world. Well, how do we assess the achievements of the Ars Historica as seen in one microscopic case in Baudouin's Prolegomena? Certainly, the genre did not achieve what its creators hoped. They hoped they were going to put a stop to the French religious wars, which of course went on for another two generations after Baudouin and Baudin. So that was a dead loss. But I think we can still argue that Baudouin's work and Baudin's and the others that came out at the same time and a little later performed some extraordinary kinds of intellectual work. They formed in the first place a new intellectual crossroads where traditions that had existed entirely apart from one another could meet, could collide, could join fruitfully in ways that had never happened. They made it possible for a critical hermeneutical account of history to be framed in terms so rich, meticulous, and sophisticated that they really wouldn't be matched again until the late 18th and early 19th centuries. They created a kind of dialogue between the theory of history and the writing of history. Anyone who looks at the great late 16th century historians Zurita in Spain, Dutu in France, uh, Acosta in the New World, reads men who were thoroughly steeped in this literature and who were doing their best to create histories that actually lived up to its precepts. So it's, it's uh, very common for historians who feel that they are practitioners and down to earth to say that theorists of history have nothing to do with the practice of history. In some cases, that's true. But in this case, the theorists of history are not only in fruitful and productive dialogue with earlier historians, they actually do much to shape generations of historians in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. 
Um, as Zurita finished his history of Aragon, for example, he submitted it to the judgment of a great historian and antiquary, Antonio Agustin, and one can follow in their correspondence Agustin's complaints about the lack of speeches, the bad rhetoric, and so on. Uh, and sees Zurita re re recoiling with horror as Augustine rewrites his primary source quotations because, of course, primary sources should not be quoted literally in a political history. It's not the most productive of these interactions, but it's a meaningful one nonetheless. And de Tu and de Costa are two of the most extraordinarily creative historians of the time. So in that respect at least, and perhaps even more in it's creating of generations of critical readers of history, readers who went to work and did their intellectual work with these formal hermeneutical rules in their toolboxes. Readers who included, by the way, not only Harvey and Dee, now pretty much forgotten, but Francis Bacon and René Descartes and other people whose mastery of these tools has not been as apparent to historians as it might be. There, too, we see an extraordinary achievement of the genre. Well, it's always a temptation when you fall in love with practitioners of an unexpectedly powerful and sophisticated brand of intellectual inquiry to go a little too far. As my colleague Robert Darton said of a, a great admirer of the 18th century philosophe, it's as if they had the entire ancien regime mind. They had laid the trails of powder. They were approaching with the matches, and all they needed was Robespierre to blow the whole thing up. Well, I don't actually want to suggest that. There were structural problems with the Artes Historicae, which prevented them from developing further. There were innovations in the form and content of history writing, which would make the considerations of the most original 16th century thinkers increasingly intelligent. And for those who have the patience to stomach a second journey into the labyrinths and forests of 16th century historiography, I'll try to lay those out on Wednesday. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.